0: Hello, I'm Tim Bermas, and this is NPR's Book of the Day. On today's episode, two novels that center the lives of teenage boys and the complicated forces that shape them. In a minute, we'll hear about a book focused on a few hours in the life of one troubled teen. But first, The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy africa by Stephen Burrow. It's a coming-of-age comic novel that takes place against the backdrop of some pretty intense realities, including colonialism and violence. Here, Burroughs speaks about his book and the ideas that motivated it with NPR's Camilla Domenoski.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu.
2: In Stephen Burroughs' new darkly comic novel, a Nigerian teenager named Andy dreams about his father.
3: Maybe I'm like Papa. I really want to know who the hell he is. His dusty feet, his booming voice, his grip on my shoulder.
2: The 15-year-old doesn't know his father. It's a secret his mother keeps from him. The secret he keeps from her... A secret that's very obvious to his two best friends? That Andy dreams of white women, blondes to be precise.
3: A Marilyn Monroe who has never had mosquitoes sink in her ears and suck her blood, leaving red swellings as they fly away. A Princess Diana who has never woken up at midnight with hunger. A Taylor Swift who has never experienced a blackout
2: that, of course, is Stephen Burrow, reading from his debut novel, The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa. Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Now, your book, the excerpt you just read, it's all in the voice of Andy. His nickname is Andy Africa. How did he get that nickname?
3: <laughs> so it's like a school assembly, and he makes some anti-African comments. And his teacher like punishes him by like giving him that nickname.
2: Yeah, yeah. He hates being called Andy Africa for, I mean, is it some of the same reasons why he's, in some cases, really angry about living in Africa?
3: Exactly, yeah, exactly, yes.
2: I want to also ask a question about the very beginning of this book. The first words of the book are, dear white people, why did you start like that?
3: Yeah, Um. the novel is just more about... And trying to confess his obsession for whiteness, I mean for blonde women and, and all that. And and for me, confession is a very powerful, powerful process, right? Because I mean it contains acceptance, courage, and all that. And it also demonstrates vulnerability. And I come from a very strong Catholic background, and and confession is a very Big sacrament actually, in the Catholic Church. And it just seemed very important, actually, for Andy to address this whiteness, this white people who have colonized him, who have forced all these ideas on him.
2: Yeah, right. And he has this concept that he's come up with to help explain what to him is one of the mysteries in in the book, which is why is his life, why is Africa the way that it is? Hxvx. Can you can you explain that and tell us where you got that idea from?
3: Andy often sees the huge problems that contemporary Africa experiences, Nigeria in particular. It's just so huge. It feels as if it's like a super force or something like like a kind of a god or something, or maybe a super villain actually that is actually like trying to worsen things and worsen his own situation and and all that. And the name. For God in, of course, in the Old Testament, in, in the Bible, Y-H-W-H. So Andy decides to adopt that and to call like the issues, the different issues plaguing Africa as the constructs, which he calls HSVX. Yeah. So and, so, and some of these issues involving like issues like slavery, colonialism, kleptocracy, yeah, and the collapse of our indigenous governments and all that.
2: Well, does it does it work? <laughs> does having this this hexvex idea, this hxvx, does it make his life make more sense to him?
3: I think it does. I think it does uh, because in the novel now, Andy uses different like tools, right? Different devices. I mean, from like mathematics because he loves math, and then poetry, and then science fiction. I mean, all the ideas about superheroes in the book, and religion to unravel himself for the reader.
2: Right. Andy loves his mother, and he is so profoundly ashamed of her. And not just in, like, teenage boys are always embarrassed by their mother way, right? Like, he also feels that she is too black, that she's not educated enough. He comments on the way that she smells sometimes. But then also, you know, he loves the way that she smells other times. It's it's complicated.
3: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, um, he's been fed all this stuff from hollywood i mean hollywood is so influential on like in helping in helping teenagers like define their sense of self the standards of beauty and what's like what are the ideals anyway yeah so that feeling of shame and i mean about her blackness and she's this very black woman and whom he's supposed to be proud of and he actually admits that right that he should appreciate her more in that sense and uh, but he doesn't due to like all that has been fed to him, yeah, as a standard of beauty and all that, yeah.
2: You grew up in northern Nigeria in the same area that, that Andy did, right?
3: Exactly, yes.
2: And now you live in England? Yeah, correct. Yeah, can I ask a personal question? How did you transition between those two different realities?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've still not transitioned, and. they? They're two very powerful, starkly different uh, realities. I mean, I remember, for example, my f- very first week in the UK and how everything was was incredibly strange. I mean, I mean, for example, I couldn't just even look outside my window. I had to, like, pull my curtains tight. I mean, I closed my curtains for, like, the very first week. And just to be able to, like, process the incredible change and to um, begin to accept my new surroundings anyway. And... Uh, Thankfully, I've I think I've made some good progress so far. So yeah,
2: <laughs> the the voice, the narration of your book is is very funny and it's fun. And Andy is such a teenage boy. And then the events that happen, there are different permutations of horrific violence, and they're almost in the background. Like these terrible things happen, and then the narrative moves on. It seems quite quickly. Can you talk about why you did that, how you handled the pervasive violence in in this book?
3: Yeah, um, this theme of violence is a very, very strong post-colonial theme, right? In terms of the novel, I like Andy and even myself, when I was growing up in Nigeria, um we get to a stage where we become like desensitized to this violence, right? And then and then we we just seem to move on as a form of like psychological defense mechanism or whatever as just a way to of coming to terms with these things and dealing with them strongly wanted to do was to put a reader in that position of what it means to be a 15 year old boy growing up in nigeria like everything about the whole experience i mean from the violence to mm-hmm. issues that things deal with not just in nigeria but worldwide anyway the sex the anger, the angst, and all that. So, I mean, I was the just drama, trying to... The yeah, drama, the friend drama.
2: drama.
3: <laughs> yeah, so I was trying to just depict all these things as much as I could do in a very engaging way and all that, yeah.
2: It was it was so engaging and so fun and also so heartbreaking. Um, and well, Thank
3: you so much. Thank you.
2: Stephen Burrow. His novel is The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa. Thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Live Right, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck,
1: Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and... snacksing? Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Our
0: next interview is with Max Porter about his new novel, Shy. Set in the 90s, the novel tells the story of a black teenager who attempts to escape the last chance school for troubled boys. Porter tells NPR Scott Simon about the book, how the titular character came to be, and how he built his world.
4: Shy by Max Porter, is a short, fierce novel that can be a rant, a rumination, a reveal, blank verse, and blunt talk. Shy, a troubled British teen in the mid-1990s, has been sent to the last-chance boarding school and has loaded his rucksack in the middle of the night to break out of his dorm and escape the bunk beds, the therapy groups, and the counseling sessions. Let's ask Max Porter to read... It runs through the mind of the character he's created.
5: His heart is
3: bump,
4: bump, bumping like he's scared.
5: Idiot drama with no audience. Overthinking, overlapping voiceovers. We made such good progress today, Shy. I'm really delighted. He's sprayed, snorted, smoked, sworn, stolen, cut, punched, run, jumped, crashed an escort, smashed up a shop. Trashed a house, broken a nose, stabbed his stepdad's finger, but it's been a while since he's crept. Stressful work. Psychologically disturbed juveniles requiring special educational treatment or a bunch of teenage criminals on a taxpayer-funded countryside retreat.
4: Max Porter, author of Grief is a Thing with Feathers and other novels that have been translated into more than 30 languages, joins us now from... Bath, England. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Hello. How did this character of Shy worm his way into your mind and heart?
5: Well, he's there already because I'm raising three sons and I do a lot of mentoring with young people and I'm watching the way this country is working and what it's deciding to do with its vulnerable population and what it's deciding to do with inequality as as a pressing issue. But this specific boy rose up out of a kind of dream I'd had about a boy who was see-through, who was um, porous. Through him would pour the dead and the living, as well as the human and the non-human, and I wondered how he would react to being an unhappy teenager in the so-called real world. And I was preoccupied with him in a medieval context and then in a Victorian context, and he, as a work in progress, he eventually landed himself in 1995, and I thought, yep, that'll do it.
4: Well, help us understand the play of his mind as thoughts run through them, to use your words, again, loping along in odd, repetitive chunks, running at him, stumbling.
5: He's escaped this house, and and the whole novel is a kind of nocturne that takes place over three hours as he makes his way to this pond and has a kind of mystical encounter there. But he's in a kind of weather system. He's being bombarded at all times by other people's sense of him, the judgment of his parents, their pleading, imploring desire for him to communicate better with them, the bullying of his peers. He has these kind of night terrors, these terrible flashbacks to his recent violent past. But also he is being haunted, both by society and by literal ghosts in the building he lives in. He's sort of a centrifugal absence at the centre of the book. It's difficult to get at who he is because he is so cluttered by other people's conception of him. And I think, if anything, that's the most realistic aspect of this book, is that we only begin and end in other people's ideas of us
4: you made reference to his recent violent past Uh, i mean i inevitably said troubled teen but to be fair he's also caused a lot of trouble hasn't he yeah
5: he's done things for which he has no vocabulary of apology or or shame that's one of the themes running through the book is how does he make sense of having done these things and was it even him that did him He's got a sort of disembodied criminal self that appears to have done these things. Um, And that's based on, you know, conversations I've had with people that have done terrible things about the kind of workings of guilt as an emotional and a political and a legal framework. But, yeah, he's not a wholly sympathetic character. He's made terrible mistakes.
4: He begins to see himself like a scrub plant in the countryside.
5: Yeah. That's one of the things also that he shares with his teachers is this sense of what is worth saving, what is a waste product what is a weed and what is a plant and what's the difference and how does society value its weeds and value its flowers and could it be that one is hiding inside the other the whole time?
4: Why is the novel set in the mid-1990s? One of the things I noticed is nobody can reach shy on a cell phone. <laughs> Maybe
5: cowardice on my part because I'm raising teenagers and I, and I just see that the paradigm shift of mobile phones is so significant. Bullying has changed. Flirting has changed. Everything has changed uh, for young people. They, they live on these phones now. Um, and I and I don't feel expert enough to deal with a situation as complex as Shy, with the phones thrown in. But also I think some of the things I wanted to say about British politics and Care and his obsession with drum and bass music would have felt more like I was essaying if I'd set them in the present. And actually I like that little bit of distance. I'm interested in a historical novel that breaks the rules of the historical novel by kind of... Showing, not telling. Particularly as a teenage boy, you know, he, he, he's a bragger. He's, a, he's in a cultural tribe. It's all show for him. So I was, I was interested in, um, in that little bit of distance. Um, and also, you know, at the end of a long period of conservative government in the UK before a notional time of change and progressive energy, and I wanted to slightly question whether those things were an illusion or what they actually meant to the people uh, on the receiving end of those benefits.
4: You read the novel and do find yourself wondering... It kind of reopens a whole examination we've been through over the past generation. When is a human being a child? When are they considered an adult? I mean, we, for legal reasons, I suppose, we set arbitrary numbers, but uh, it can be awfully unsatisfying, can't it?
5: Well, wholly, especially in as much as what is deemed to be childlike. I mean, I can speak from experience. I'm a childlike person i'm not a man child i'm not i'm not i'm not acting the fool or anything but i cherish my childishness i locate it in grief i located in losing a parent as a child and retaining some thin skinnedness some craving for honesty some craving for emotional enrichment which is sometimes deemed to be of less value than financial or status-based progress in this life but i also think that also shy if you look at shy and his peers in that place they're actually achieving phenomenally accomplished Examination among themselves, kind of proto sophisticated examinations of race and class and gender that is denied us in adult life. We, we simply stop talking about those things or we adopt a position in the cultural war and just scream at one another. Whereas they're like trees in the wood. They have a kind of nutrient base that they're sharing and they're, they're teasing out of one another in, I think, in like weirdly accomplished
4: ways. Can I chance to ask you, how do you, how do you see Shine? 10 years or 30?
5: The honest answer if I'm if I'm being unguarded I want shy to be in love I want someone to have found him that makes him feel loved and for whom he can define himself in a mirror position too that he can as I was as other people I know have been saved by love not necessarily of an individual maybe of a job or a a pastime. You know, that's why I gave him this music, that his despair is always tethered, is is organically connected to this unbelievable joy he feels at the music. So I see him running a little gardening company and being in love and maybe having children or not being able to have children or whatever, but just finding that, that actually someone sees him and
4: loves him. Max Porter, his novel, Shy. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Tim Bidermias. The podcast is produced by Isabella gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Elena Burnett, Courtney Dorning, Alejandra Marquez-Hanse, Patrick Jaron Watananan, Julie Deppenbrock, Rina Idvani, Lily Kiros, Jan Johnson, Ryan Bank, Melissa Gray, Gabriel Donatov, and Ed McNulty. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks so much for listening.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to vioricom NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel, Get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths, wherever you get your podcasts.